It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest reached out to me via email, and I couldn't have been happier about her interest in being on this podcast. She has heard through others in the community that it might be a great idea for us to create this episode. I thank those individuals for the suggestion to bring she and I together. Her name is Mary Ellen Gambudi, affectionately called Mel by some, and is the published author of her memoir, I Must Have Wandered, An Adopted Air Force Daughter Recalls. It is a hybrid of lyrical prose, letters, and photos of a woman relinquished at birth in post-World War II, South Carolina. Mary Ellen reflects on the separations of her transient adoptive military family in the idyllic 1950s into the troubled and turbulent 60s. She defines and defies the barriers set by a culture of privacy and secrecy in her father's career as an Air Force intelligence officer and his religious devotion. She becomes aware as an adult that her birth records are inaccessible to her, her genetic heritage scattered. It will be up to her to gather the fragments in this heartfelt story of loss, a quest for identity, discovery, and reunion. Mary Ellen's lyrical vignettes are rich and diverse, reflecting her birth, relinquishment, and adoption, by Native New Yorkers stationed in Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina. Her 1950s and 60s childhood, adopted identity, the special consequences of her military family's transience, and her quest for family of origin. Allow me to introduce to you someone in the short time that I've known her has been a joy to chat with as I learn part of her life's journey. She has been in the company of some of my favorite adoptees who have been guests on this podcast. Paige Strickland on episode 63, Laureen Pittman on episode 69, and Julie Ryan McGue on episode 66. During this episode, Mary Ellen takes us on a ride all across the country to places she didn't just visit, but she lived there. Mary Ellen, I am just so excited to have this conversation with you, and I really appreciate you reaching out to me. Like, I was so thrilled to receive your email and and for you to be a guest on my podcast. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me, Jennifer. Uh, it's, it's really a delight to know you. Yes, and as we've 
been getting to know each other better. I know quite a few wonderful things about you already. I mean, you're first of all, you're a dog person. I am too. And <laughs> and you have been really involved in the adoption community. Since you published your, your memoir, I Must Have Wandered, an Adopted Air Force Daughter Recalls. And so I want to congratulate you on such a big accomplishment. Oh, thank you. It was, it was a long time in the works, but I decided to go with Luminaire Publishing. So it's, a, it's like an assisted self-publishing. And I've been thrilled with, with their, their assistance. That's really um, a big deal. I do believe the outcome. Yeah, yeah, the outcome. For sure. So we, we're going to get into that a little bit because there's a part two that just I sat with all morning <laughs> that I was reading and, and soaking it in. There was some words in there that the way you put it together, I felt that through my whole body. And we're going to talk about your book a little bit. I know that you started off as baby Ruth Ann, and then you became Mary Ellen. And I do think that names matter. So why don't I just ask you, where are you located right now? Because you've been moving around, bouncing around, right? South Carolina, New York, Ohio, New Jersey, Texas, Indiana, Tokyo. That's a lot of places. So where are you located now? And even even more than that, even more recently than than I'm uh, <laughs> that I would have thought by now. I I'm now my husband and I live in Lewis, Delaware, uh, which isn't far from where we grew up. When I was in New Jersey, sort of off and on, off and on since age five, I lived in. Bergen County. Now we're in Lewis, Delaware is the other side of the bay, closer to the Jersey Shore. So we're sort of near home now, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is really nice. Very good. So, you know, this year I had a chance to go through North Carolina and then mm-hmm. into South Carolina because I went to Myrtle Beach, which I, was just wonderful. So as I'm Ooh. reading your memoir, I, I, I'm just picturing the part of the country where things started for you. And so yeah. where wherever you wish to start, however much you wish to share would be great. Yeah, that, no problem. My story actually begins when I was relinquished in Greenville, South Carolina, a Catholic hospital. And uh, it was fall of 1951 when I was born. And I did know nothing of my birth mother until I was in my 40s. The people who wanted me were a childless couple Mm -hmm. at Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina. They were New Yorkers. After the war, my dad re-enlisted in the Air Force. He had been in the Army Air Corps in India, and then he was called back and re-enlisted as a first lieutenant. 
He was stationed in Shaw Air Force Base, and my mother, who he had been married to for a couple of years, was also a New Yorker, and she was working as a public health nurse. She came down to live with him Mm -hmm. in Sumter, which is where Shaw Air Force Base is located. They found that they were not able to have children, and uh, they were very always involved in the church. My father actually was in seminary before he married my mom. It was recommended to them that Catholic charities would be able to basically provide them with an infant should they want one. And so that's how that started. You know, they had no special understanding of what would it mean to raise an adopted child, you know, what those particular emotional needs might be. It was just that that I would be theirs. And as when you read the book, you'll find out that, you know, there were expectations that I would fit a mold. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we adoptees can all relate to, or most of us can relate to, is we talk about loss and the erasure of our identity. So yes, I was born Ruth Ann, but I wouldn't know that until I was in my 40s. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) I'm really enjoying your book. And you're putting me there, you know, as I learn all the, the people like Agnes your mm-hmm. mom and Al and the nun, mm-hmm. Sister Mathia and mm-hmm. Sister Francella. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing yeah. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the St. Oh, yeah. Philip's Hospital and Children's Home. And you were able, like th- these letters that I read, like you were able to obtain that. And, and how were you able to do that? Oh, yeah, I was very fortunate to have all of these pieces my uh when my father passed away I, they my mother and father lived in california and uh and when they passed when he passed away i went west to get my mom prepared to come near closer to me in at that time we were living in pennsylvania so i uncovered a suitcase of all types of documents that they had saved. I think my father actually saved them. And these were letters, you know, all of these handwritten letters and typed letters, you know, onion skinned in those days, mm-hmm. typed with carbon copy. I, I just was blown away, you know, by, by this, this treasure. And I had my, I had already had my, at that time, my, I had already done my search, so this was a little ways on when my father died. But so I had the elements that I that I needed at that point to find my birth mother, but I didn't have all this letter. I didn't have all these letters. I didn't have this treasure trove. What a treasure! Um, I would have loved <laughs> to have had those letters. <laughs> they are pretty amazing, I must say. Yes. I hope that people will enjoy them and and um, 
and learn about a different time, basically. Um, they, they have a quality to them which really does speak to the time, the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's... When I was reading the letters, I was like, this is very special. Yeah, that you... And that you shared them with us. Yeah. I felt like they were they were meant to be shared. Uh, you know, I I realized that I took some risks in um, in speaking about my family as as sort of intimately as I did. My parents are gone now. Most most of my my family is gone. I'm 71 now, so. I felt it was my time, you know, to tell to tell my story in its completion. I'm so um, glad you did. And and I know when I was reading the advanced praise of your your memoir and I saw the names Paige Strickland, Laureen Pittman, and Julie Ryan McHugh, I thought, I know them. They've been actually been on the podcast and and they are all great writers as well. So yeah, that was nice to learn. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think this is a good time to talk about um, part two, do over, that really, really stuck with me. Um, when you describe in such a, a wonderful way what this seamless mm-hmm. system says, mm-hmm. and I, I like to read what you wrote. Please say, do. Yeah, a good family wants a child. You can't take care of her, meaning the birth mother. Families, social service agencies, churches, maternity homes, missions, infant homes, doctors, lawyers, all make up the system that must work for the good of the state, the good of society. Like, it just did something to me when I read that because Mm -hmm. my story, very similar, you know, like Mm -hmm. all of these parts of the system Mm-hmm. believing they're working for the good of the state and the yeah. good of society. You want to talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit? Well, I, yeah, I, I realized that I have a, a little bit of a tone in that, um, <laughs> a slight bit of facetiousness to it, <laughs> but it's what I feel very strongly that, you know, it, what was thought, to be for the good of society. Actually, we're finding out now that it probably is not. I just feel we're, we're finding out now that uh, all these years later, that, that the institution of, of adoption is not really a benefit to society. It's actually harmful and hurtful to the mother and to the child, mm-hmm. you know, in varying degrees, I'm sure, but people are different. But from what I understand and what I read and, and about from other adoptees and what I hear on social media is that it's, it's got a, a cruel effect on the mother and the child one that that may not even be it's not fully understood perhaps but that talk of the of the primal wound 
and it, it extends to both the mother and the child, I believe. Yes. Yeah, I believe, too. I agree. Mm-hmm. And you go on to say in uh, Do Over, and, and this I, I felt this, too, because I was named at birth, and then two years later, when I was permanently placed, my name was changed. And you mm-hmm. say, in one fell swoop, Ruth Ann to Mary Ellen, it would have mattered. Names matter. What comes up for you? What feelings when you think about once being Ruth Ann and and then she loses everything, as you wrote, her mother, Mm -hmm. her heritage, and her name? Yeah, exactly that. Uh, it, it, It was an overpowering feeling that I had discovered discovered my identity, no matter the fact that it was really only a matter of a year before the you know the the document was changed, you know this the it still had an effect on me to know that that this was a a child who was named by her mother and who who used was you know whose name was used spoken to you know when i was in foster care that's how i was known that was my do- that was my name mm-hmm. and the same for you you know with yours you know i don't know your story about how that was how that came about but my assumption is that we infants whose names were changed, we were stripped of our identity. We were erased. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was given the name Bonnie Lynn. Oh. And you're right, I was born in 64, but you're right back in those times, it was usually these these two names mm-hmm. that kind of went together. I think the way you put it is, in your in your book, Mary Lou, Mary Beth, Mary Jo, right, and mm-hmm. and um, Sue Beth and Sue Ellen and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I was Bonnie Lynn, and then I was named by 1960. I guess it was official in 67, <clears throat> but mm-hmm. I still, in many circles, am called Bonnie, and I wow. love hearing that name <laughs> because it reminds me of it being a part of me and it will always be a part of me. It's the part of my beginnings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. That's really pretty amazing that you still have kept at least a, a shred of that, that identity. That's really something. My parents, you know, they, they had nothing to do with that name, my adoptive parents. They had nothing to do with that name. Uh, from the moment that I was taken home with them, they called me Mary Ellen. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the adoption wasn't finalized uh, until 52, October of 52, you know, that I was Mary Ellen to them. And they had no expressed interest in my beginnings. And as, as you'll find out, or you probably have, that uh, even the location of my birth was falsified. 
because they just represented that I was born in Rock Hill, uh, you know, a, a, not a very long drive from Sumter to get me in Rock Hill. They thought, and the certificate of baptism and birth, what they called it in those days, uh, stated that that was my birthplace, York County. But in fact, that was not true. And I wouldn't, and I wouldn't know that until, you know, when I searched. I feel it's wrong. I feel that, you know, it's a misrepresentation, not only of who I am, but where I was, you know, where I was brought to the world. I, That's something I agree. Yeah. Exactly. And I just recently heard an adoptee say it's criminal. And when she said it, I thought it absolutely is. And mm-hmm. I and I come out I come from a background in law enforcement. I spent twenty seven mm-hmm. years in that career and it would definitely be considered criminal if we were conducting an investigation and we're getting documents that are falsified that aren't true. It's it's a fraud. And uh the fact that it's you know, that there's still states like South Carolina, my home, my, my birth state that are just refused to, you know, complete the process of changing the law. They're, they're doing it. What seems to me sort of, they're teasing their way into a change. They're, they're doing it incrementally and, that uh, these are lawmakers, you know, that, that I've, I've written to them and urged them, you know, when they were just recently, you know, was up to up for, for litigation again, you know, that I, I had all the information that I needed. I just wanted the full acknowledgement that, this is my birth certificate. This is my true birth certificate from Greenville, South Carolina. Not that I have to have this hanging over me, this falsified record. Right. I'll have to take it to, you know, I'll have to petition to do it, Mm -hmm. you know, at great great expense. And it's, dehumanizing. (laughs) Yeah, I think the word I've heard you use, which is perfect, is that South Carolina is toying with adoptees. Exactly. Yeah. I think they are. Yeah. As a closed record state and very restrictive. um, Yeah, it's heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking that there's still so many states that won't give adoptees access to their their records. And like you, uh, my mm-hmm. birth parents are deceased and I, I, I'm 58 years old. So like, just mm-hmm. give me my records. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So I know you um, did meet your birth mother. And so for the <laughs> listeners that may not know, do you want to talk about how that happened? Oh, yes. Um what I had to do was um, get my passport. I, I was, we were going to be going away, my husband and I, and I needed a passport. 
And I think that's probably as good a place as any to start that I was not able to use that certificate of baptism and birth that I referred to before to get a passport. Now, when I was an Air Force daughter, when I was a dependent and traveled overseas, my parents, my adoptive parents were able to use that record. But I used it as my identification, uh, you know, all my life. Uh, when I went to to get the passport, passport this time, they denied it. They said it was basically no longer valid. So I was working with a non-valid form of ID, which is, it was just, drove me crazy. Mm. <laughs> so... And then I found out that in order to, to get a passport, I would have to get my birth certificate, my, my true birth certificate, which then, of course, I found out was sealed and blocked by the state. So what was my alternative? Well, I then found out that there's such a thing as an amended birth certificate. And... After paying my fee, I received a little white piece of paper that stated that I was actually born in Greenville, South Carolina. Mm. So that's when I I launched the you know in a in a in a hospital in Greenville. So that's when I decided oh, I have I have to go further with this and and actually find this find this woman, you know, I was in, in touch with some search groups in Philadelphia and they kind of guided me and gave, gave me all kinds of literature and guided me. I had my adoption records from my mother and father. I had those. I didn't have the way to, to find Greenville. I didn't know that it, that it was actually in Greenville. If I'm making if I'm if I'm making sense, mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> so now, yes, yeah, so now I did know. <laughs> yeah. So you, her name was located. Your birth mother's name was located on on the uh, documents that you you discovered or were given. No, no. What I had to do was I got the non-identifying information, which we many of us have to go through which basically just said the location of um, the family without the name, no names, her height, her weight, you know, this sort of thing, no medical information. So I, I worked with a, a, a local historian in Greenville, and I wrote many letters. One of the adoption workers, I guess you would call a social worker, I'm not exactly sure what her title was, was willing to give me more information, like more specific information. And she basically, for a fee, breached the record. Okay, that was very rare, I suppose, but it gave me a name. And then I was able to to go with the local historian and 
and that sort of thing. And lo and behold, it comes out that I do have a family in Greenville and I was able to connect with a half sister who had my birth mother in her, you know, under her care, basically. So it was really, it was just an extraordinary thing that it, it just, it took a, it took a year or so to, to get it ha- to happen, just churning all of the, the wheels. But it happened. But it, it happened. And I traveled down to South Carolina and met my mother and my sister and her children and we had a nice relationship for a year and she passed away the following year. She was quite ill. Mm-hmm. So I, I had that amazing opportunity. From that point, I was able to, with the help of DNA, I was able to find a, an expanded family, an extended family. That's wonderful. And so that's your maternal side. And what about your paternal side? Well, that was where the DNA came in because my mother was not able to give me the information that the liaison with my birth father, my biological father. She either, for one reason or another, was not able to either recall or or wasn't willing to to divulge his name. Now, when I'm looking at the records from my dad's suitcase, we'll we'll, we'll call it, there was no ever any reference to a father. When I did have my breach of non-identifying information, they did tell me that she, at the time of her, I guess, registration into Catholic Charities or the hospital, she's, she was very, very firm about not knowing who the father was. I have to believe it, considering what I know now. Mm-hmm. So... I thought that it was going to be a hopeless situation. You know, there was no internet, no DNA testing at the time that I was searching for her. It wouldn't be until, you know, quite a few years later when I was on social media and talking to DNA groups and that sort of thing that I found that there would be a way to by what I'll call process of elimination, I tested with my two adoptive maternal sisters that I would be able to sort of glean out the paternal side. But eventually I got a, a second co- a first and second cousin matches and uh, they proved to be my father's close relatives. So it takes time if you're going to do, if you know, for people who are going to do it, it takes a lot of time and persistence, but it can be done. <laughs> That's the word, persistence. Yes, absolutely. A lot of, a lot of persistence suffer. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I'm a stroke survivor and uh, a very determined person that really was to my benefit because now I have a wonderful set of siblings uh, that I never would have known. Right. Yes. When I heard you um, were a survivor, I was just glad to know that you're still here. You're still here oh. with us. That That is a serious health challenge, and, and I'm glad you're doing well now. Thank you. As a published author, how does it feel to be on the other side of writing your memoir? Oh, I, it's fulfilling. You know, it's a sense of fulfillment. I feel like I got it done and it was, it was a big job. <laughs> I had written a couple of other, a few other books. One, one of them permanent home was uh, an, an anthology of essays that I had written and had published in various literary journals. So that's what permanent home is. And there are versions of some of the essays in I Must Have Wandered that were adoption, were my adoption and search related. It's a variety. It's a diverse book. But I had taken lots of courses in memoir writing, and I knew that that was something that I wanted to, to keep doing and, and learning about. That's what brought me to to write this story. But as I said before, you know, there were some brave decisions about using names and places. Right. Um, but I felt that, you know, the, the circumstances are all truthful. It, it is a creative nonfiction work um, in the sense that I'm using correspondence and letters and articles and images, it, it, it does have a kind of timeline. And, you know, I want it to be accessible to a wide audience, not only to people who enjoy nonfiction, but also, obviously, to the adoption community. So, yeah, it feels good. Yeah, I'm really proud of you, and I, I do <laughs> love the creativity of your book, how you how you did it. Thank you. And I recently learned from you that you're a part of Adoptee Authors on the Page, which was created by Sarah Easterly. And so for the listening audience, it's a non-competitive, non-performative group that supports published authors, mm-hmm. um, adoptee authors, <laughs> in mm-hmm. nuanced matters specific to publicly mm-hmm. writing and sharing about adoption and just the added note it meets once a month third thursday of each month and you started in september right yes yeah. uh, we've, we've had a couple of sessions and this actually is for women only okay. adopted okay okay thank you yes <laughs> let us know that <laughs> yeah i um i just know a little bit about the group through sarah uh, but I think it's so important when we write and publish that people know that we did so. And uh, part of that includes marketing. 
It includes getting the word out um, that we have completed uh, a big project. It's not easy to write and publish. Mm -hmm. It takes Mm -hmm. it takes um, persistence. (laughs) Yes, it does. And uh, I think that as an independent author, uh, when you're not backed by um, you know a major publishing company. Uh, you you do have more of a challenge, and um, so the work has to be done. You know, obviously, it has to be done by yourself as an author, an independent author. So it is time consuming, and it is it can be expensive depending on you know what your resources are. Uh, it can even be prohibitive, some of it. So you 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 fit you find the the avenues that work for you, and um, you you hope for the readership to be broadened. I I do appreciate you having me on this podcast because it, it's one of the it's one of the greatest challenge. Um, channels for uh, adoptee authors to get the word out about your publications and your work. Uh, And so I do appreciate that. You are so welcome. Absolutely. And I'm happy to do that. I, um, I remember recently an adoptee found my podcast, which was a delight because I'm always curious as how people are able to do that. And she started listening. She actually became a, a supporter of the mm-hmm. podcast, um, which mm-hmm. is like, I just have no words for how wonderful that feels to mm-hmm. know I am, you know, an added value to the community. And she said that she discovered like other authors, their books from my podcast. So clearly, <laughs> and she, and she yeah. bought them and she started reading them. So clearly yeah. it is, um, a very good way to get the word out and and I call it um reciprocity at its best because uh-huh. when you when you reach out to me and and we are able to do this or I reach out to you and you say yes it's a win-win it really oh, is yeah. it really, it's a great service yeah. it really is great service to independent authors well I, I I absolutely want to value your time and I um want to just ask you what has been the most rewarding thing about being better connected to the adoption community and also maybe if there has been a challenge what that has been oh there yeah I think so I think that you know uh, the way I feel about it is that it hasn't always been smooth sailing uh, in adoption land <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's an emotional, um, you know, it's an emotional journey and for all of us. And so uh, I think of it as uh, I'm navigating it, you know, up and down, bobbing along. <laughs> I think that we, most of us relate, you know, to the self-doubt. Um, for me, the positives of search and discovery of my biological kin outweigh the negatives uh, and so i'm happy to do what i do or how much work i do in, on social media and in adoption land 
I do, I am sad that adoption law largely views us as second class citizens. Um, but I hope this is something that's going to change with the the changes in New England and, and elsewhere. Yes. It will happen. Yeah, it will yeah. Ha- it will happen. Mm-hmm. It will happen. And as we continue to speak up and speak out mm-hmm. on podcasts, with blogs, with memoirs and, and you name it, um mm-hmm. it will happen. So is there so. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish to share? Uh well, I was wondering if you would mind if I read a little tiny bit. I was, you know, I wanted to ask you that and I was hoping you would say yes when I asked you and I'm thrilled I didn't even have to ask you. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I'll I'll just read something that I've, uh, it has been out before. It's, it's a little tiny prose poem called Out of the Blue. Okay. And it goes like this. What did Virgo's stars pretend? A prophecy of place and time, a raison d'etre. On the designated date, September 21st, the cusp of Libra the just, she was pushed into the autumnal equinox, formed in a fog like a nebula, delivered in sorrow on fall's first day. Early autumn brought blue asters, sweaters, school days and storms the mother and child placed together by unvirtuous accident were separated in a single swift scoop of happenstance all concern should be protected our union of chance was brought asunder by circumstance another post-war charity case gave me life and then left in tears, left me in tears, in a swirl of ambiguity and abstraction. We were severed and left to wonder. The facts of her birth muddled, muddied by secrets and lies. Her name erased, the record sealed, out of the wild blue yonder, blue like a September sky like a sapphire birthstone. He belonged to an Air Force couple. Your words are beautiful. And I really feel like I heard baby Ruth Ann, too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the things that led me, and I, I talk about this in the in the beginning, in the introduction of the book, is that the, the connection that I made with being a military daughter, uh, you know, an Air Force daughter, and the transience and, and um, that came with that, I, I think had special consequences on me as an adoptee, you know, uh, um, that you're always moving from school to school and location to location. And, you know, as an adoptee, you are already a kind of wanderer. Mm-hmm. So that was how I saw it, you know, myself as a wanderer, 
and that is really amplified by my life as a military daughter that sort of unrootedness of a, of a military family and a quest you know for a family of origin thank you for sharing that oh sure that seems to be probably a pretty important point i, um, I agree yeah this has just been great this time with you and and i just um i thank you for having this conversation with me thank you so much for having me jennifer i so appreciate it and it's great to know you thank you as i daily pick up and read mary ellen's words from her memoir entitled i must have wandered an adopted air force daughter recalls She puts me on the path with her and her parents, Al and Agnes. In the beginning pages, I'm discovering baby Ruth Ann's start in life through the adults involved with her care before she becomes Mary Ellen. From the many letters and documents from the 1950s. It's a page turner for sure, and you can find the link in the show notes of how to get your copy. I felt Mary Ellen's pain of continual uprootedness in her story of being relinquished at birth, followed by being the adopted daughter of a military man whose assignments had his family moving from state to state throughout her childhood. She endured the lack of stability in her home long after her adoption. I can only imagine as an adoptee that for years the ground beneath Mary Ellen never felt quite solid. She has managed through the passage of time to process her experience that led to her writing and sharing in a creative way, along with those ever-special letters and pictures from the past. She also writes about her professional gardening career and her survival of a hemorrhagic stroke. Her personal essays have been published in many literary journals. She and her husband, Phil, live in Lewis, Delaware, with their rescued Chihuahua. Thank you, Mary Ellen, for having this conversation with me. Your perspective about what happened to you as a relinquished person has given me an even greater insight about being moved around. I'm sure there are plenty of adoptees from military families who can say, yep, that happened to me. As adoptees, we adapt. But that doesn't suggest that it didn't take a toll on the added layer of things constantly changing in our young lives. Your ability to recover from a serious health scare is a remarkable example of life seeking life. And I know you don't take it lightly. I'm glad you're here through it all to tell your story, be in your family's life, and likely help someone else in the process with all of your lived experience. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianegolston.com. Thank you so much for being here.